Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday, the band's been shipped off to nursery, the pot of Yorkshire is on the go, and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time. Welcome to the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast. Today, it is episode 33. And today on episode 33, we'll be celebrating a birthday because it's been 45 years since Alvaro Recoba was born. The Table Never Lies goes to La Liga and to the 2003-04 season, but first, we've got to talk about the 2007-08 FA Cup season, which was, to put it mildly, a whirlwind. Before we get going, let's do a bit of uh, admin. Um, this is our first episode on the podcast feed of the Notice Nostalgia podcast from this Wednesday onwards, in perpetuity, eternity, will be on Apple, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, really, for the Notice Nostalgia podcast. We'll be adding to it in the summer, so if you could follow and subscribe or whatever your podcast app wants you to do and give us a five-star review, that'd help us in those lovely, lovely algorithms, get some more viewers, get us up, up and away on this podcast feed launch this week. So without further ado, let's launch into today's show. So the 2007-8 FA Cup, the holders were Chelsea after the first season back at the New Wembley when they beat Manchester United in one of the worst FA Cup finals you're ever likely to see. And among the favourites were, of course, the big four, Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, and they were the last four winners of the trophy. They hadn't been a big, non-big four team win it since 1995 and Everton. And if Manchester United would have beaten Everton that time, it would have been all the way back to 91 when, F, when the FA Cup winner was Tottenham Hotspur beating Nottingham Forest in that one. So in the 2006-07 season, we had an all-Premier League semi-final. We had Chelsea beating Blackburn, Manchester United beating Watford and an almost all-Premier League quarter-final with the exception of Plymouth. And now this sort of thing seems to be cyclical. We see it at international tournaments as well, the likes of um, the 2002 World Cup threw up with quite a few shocks as did the 2018 tournament and the 2010. So it seems to be on a cyclical basis. And this FA Cup, the 2007-8, we should have known there would be fireworks right from the off. Leeds 
United, big old Leeds, were starting in the first round for the first time in their history and they went and lost to Hereford United. Um, it was never a dull moment in the FA Cup for Leeds around this time. They would um, lose to Histon in the first round or second round uh, the following season. And then afterwards, their final first, um, starting in the first round, they went on to the third round and beat Manchester United. So regardless. Anyway, I was in attendance at one of those FA Cup first round weeks in 2007. I was at the Shea, my local um, football team. Well, not quite my local football team, but the nearest team that are not in the top, that are in the top 10 leagues in the uh, in the English football pyramid. And I witnessed Halifax getting absolutely trounced 4-0 by Burton Albion. So the futures of both clubs gone in very different directions after that day. Burton going to the championship, Halifax going into liquidation in the uh, couple of years after this. And are looking to bounce back to the EFL, so fingers crossed for the shaman on that one. Anyway, Haven't and Waterlooville won at York on the first round week and sprung a surprise, another surprise, against Notts County. They were to make the third round of the FA Cup for the first time in their history. Joining them as uh, third round virgins were Chase Town. The magic wasn't over, they, even though they would lose 3-1 to Cardiff in their first ever third round match. Liverpool were taken to a replay with Luton and they seemed to have their problems with Luton around this time. The last time they faced, a couple of seasons before, and they needed a a Xabi Alonso halfway line goal in quite a entertaining third round match. I seem to remember in the 0506 season. Might be a bit off with the years there. Anyway, so Haven't and Waterlooville got a money spinning replay at Swansea. Swansea weren't the Premier League team at this time. They were just about to enter that sort of era. But haven't got a replay. They put four past the Swans in front of nearly 5,000 people in front of the home fans, which is just phenomenal, really, considering I think they were a, what we'd call a Blue Square South team. So Vanarama South or National League South, whichever sponsorship you want to call it these days. And the shocks were over there. Everton got done by Oldham, um, arguably the fifth or sixth best team in the land. That's Everton, not Oldham in that one. Uh, Blackburn and Bolton, two quite big teams at the time, regularly making top half finishes. They were done by teams from the lower leagues, uh, Sheffield United, Coventry, Fulham two against Bristol Rovers. Bristol Rovers, who would sneakily make it through to the quarterfinals, beating um, EFL opposition in Barnet and uh, Southampton. And the magic really kicked into gear right from the uh, fourth round draw. Haven't Waterlooville got a huge tie at Anfield and I still don't know why it wasn't televised because my memories of it seem to be reduced to Soccer Saturday excerpts from um, Paul Merson and Phil Thompson winding each other up and uh, Sheffield United bagged another scalp in the fourth round beating Manchester City 2-1 obviously. Not the city that they are now but they were getting there in in 2007-8, they were getting that tie money at the time and they would get bought out in the summer. So the big names continued in the draw regardless. Arsenal beat Newcastle 3-0. I think that was Kevin Keegan's first match back or would have been around that same time. Chelsea beat Wigan 2-1. Wigan newbies in the Premier League at the same time, their second season, third season, sorry. And Manchester United beat Spurs 3-1 in what was on paper the tie of the round. But the magic was to be had at Anfield where despite going 2-1 behind to little old Haven't and Waterlooville. Liverpool, unfortunately or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, managed to bag five in the end to go through. It was a very big scare. I remember being so excited as a Manchester United fan that Liverpool might lose to a uh, semi-pro team in Haven't and Waterlooville, but there we go. I've got some memories from the uh, this season's tournament from first at George HS 2706. He nearly gave himself a hernia laughing at Liverpool versus Barnsley, which didn't end too well for him because he's a Chelsea fan. 
um, which we'll get onto in a minute. And Lelouch also has the memory of Barnsley beating Liverpool. And again, it was a match that wasn't televised. Barnsley, I think they were a championship club at that time, versus away at a, a big Premier League team. Liverpool made the Champions League final the season before, so it's a big match. Um, again, restricted to Soccer Saturday memories. And the memories was Phil Thompson going absolutely crazy on Soccer Saturday because Brian Howard, when it looked as though it was going to a replay, which was kind of embarrassing enough for Liverpool. Barnsley were a Premier League team a decade before, but they hadn't sort of done anything since. I think they dropped to the third tier, come back up to the Championship, and is where they are now. Um, so yeah, Brian Howard got the last-minute winner, Phil Thompson going crazy. Um, another memory from the 2007-8 season of the FA Cup, Alex Rhodes, former presenter, good friend of the show on this uh, podcast. He remembers Nanny doing kick-ups for 40 yards against Arsenal. So later on, after the dust had settled on Barnsley's upset against Liverpool, Manchester United had to play Arsenal in the tie of the fifth round easily. And it could have been a very squeaky contest. Arsenal going for the Premier League at that time, they were had their usual... February slash March collapse in this season as well. Uh, Manchester United thrashing them 4 0, and Nani doing a sealed dribble when the match was won, which was uh, fairly memorable to say the least. And the, ma- the making up of the final eight was Portsmouth, Cardiff, Middlesbrough, West Brom, and Chelsea, which let's do a bit, bit of a uh, comparison from this weekend's quarter final because it is quarter final weekend this season in the FA Cup. We've got Bournemouth versus Southampton, Everton versus Manchester City, Chelsea versus Sheffield United, and Leicester versus Man United. So, 2008's quarter-final started with Manchester United against Portsmouth. It was an all-Premier League tie, but Manchester United were firm favourites going into it. They were treble hunting again, as it were. They had um, a semi-final with Barcelona in the Champions League. The Premier League was neck and neck with Chelsea, and it would go down to the final day. And Manchester United absolutely demolished Portsmouth, but yet with still 15 minutes to go, it was completely goalless. Edwin van der Sar had come off injured earlier on in the game, which wouldn't usually be noteworthy, but... Then it came down to a Portsmouth counter-attack with Manchester United's defenders somehow being Wayne Rooney and Anderson from a, like attacking a corner. And then that there, those are the two defenders on the counter-attack, which was you know all wrong. They get both get attracted to the ball, which leaves an easy pass for Milan Barros, fed through on goal. Thomas Kujak in the Man United net brings him down and he's got straight red. And that leaves Rio Ferdinand to go in the goal. And... Regardless of whether or not it was a red card, double jeopardy, I mean, maybe, who knows what it would have been these days. The rules are completely garbled now, aren't they, anyway? So, Sully Ali Montari converts. Regardless, the United peppering continues of the Portsmouth goal, but it remains 1-0. The name seemed to be on the FA Cup, and it was Portsmouth's. So, I got big memories of playing FIFA away all night, the previous night, a mate's going home, just getting home for kickoff, having a nap, waking up and going back to sleep after the match finished because I was just so upset and so frustrated because that could have been a a second treble for Manchester United, the only team to win the treble twice. Obviously, Barcelona would then go on to do that in 2015. So later that night, it was a turn of Chelsea and now with Man United out of the way, they were overwhelming favourites to win it. They travelled to Oakwell to play Barnsley. Barnsley, obviously, giant conquerors from the round before against Liverpool and the legend that was Coyote Odejaye. Barnsley and Chelsea, of course, met earlier on in this season, in 2021, and they, the memories of the Odejaye header and the winner resurfaced. Barnsley won 
And with Chelsea out of the way, the cup was blown wide open. Middlesbrough, in theory, Middlesbrough probably were the favourites around this time. It was They were the only other Premier League team left aside from Portsmouth. But <laughs> Sunday morning, early goals from Peter Whittington and Roger Johnson knocked them out. And West Bromwich Albion completed the semi-finals with a 5-1 win at Bristol Rovers. And yeah, so your semi-final lineup is West Brom, Barnsley and Cardiff of the Championship and Portsmouth as the sole Premier League representation. So this is the only time it's ever happened that I can seem to recall with just one Premier League, one top flight team being uh, the only representation in the FA Cup semi-final. So that representation went through to the final via a Canu head, via a Canu goal in a 1-0 win over West Brom at Wembley, the first semi-final to be played at Wembley since 2000. In the other semi-final of the day after, Joe Ledley got the only goal for Cardiff in the All-Championship tie against Barnsley, killing their dreams of adding to their FA Cup, their first and only FA Cup in 1912, I think, plucking that day out of thin air. Before Canu struck again in the final, it would have been Cardiff's first FA Cup since 1927 when they beat Arsenal, but it was Portsmouth's first FA Cup since 1939 when they beat Wolves 4-1. I reached out onto Twitter to ask my followers of their favourite FA Cup memories. Now, George HS2706 didn't have fond memories of the 2008 tournament, but he has fonder memories of the tournaments either side. Obviously, Chelsea winning it in 2007. He remembers the comeback against Tottenham in the quarterfinals the most, and obviously 2009 where Chelsea went on to win the tournament against Everton. He remembers Arsenal being a pain in the neck for Chelsea in the early part of the 2000s. And yet Arsenal routinely got to the final of the FA Cup. I think 2001 they lost, 2002 they would beat Chelsea, obviously in the final, it's only Ray Parler, that, that, that memory. Uh, they beat Southampton in 2003, beat Man United in 2005. So yeah, Arsenal really had a, a control over the FA Cup and which is why they are record holders of the title with uh, 14 wins to, I think Man United have got 12 as well. So Harry Holland remembers the Liverpool-West Ham final, which has got to go down as one of the greatest finals alongside the Owen final of 2001, alongside the Stanley Matthews final in the 50s. You got Stephen, you may as well call it the Stephen Gerrard final, scoring that superb 30-yard uh, belter from, um, yeah, fantastic. I remember watching that in a pub just around the corner from me and uh, suddenly a load of Liverpool fans in West Yorkshire. Yeah, well. Um, Harry Holland also remembers the Wigan win over Manchester City, the David Seaman save in the semi-final against Sheffield United and the Paul Gascoigne free kick in 91. Although I think, Harry, you were born well after that, but it is a timeless FA Cup moment, let's say that. Jake Collinson remembers the FA Cup semi-final at Old Trafford when we, in brackets, Sunderland, their big Sunderland fan, lost to Millwall and he forever holds a grudge against Tim Cahill. And at that time, that was another example of an all-championship FA Cup semi-final and Millwall would of course go on, to the semi- go on to the final and like Cardiff lose and the winners there Manchester United of course but they wouldn't be the uh, winners the following year as Joe remembers and he remembers a 2005 FA Cup final between Arsenal and Manchester United of course as the uh, first game of football that he can remember and Lelouch replies to him saying United were robbed and I do agree um, they absolutely dominated Arsenal in quite a convincing fashion but just could not get the goal it finished nil-nil. Patrick Vieira scored the uh, penalty with his last kick in an Arsenal shirt. Meanwhile, Paul Scholes missed, so he was human after all. And Joe also says that Arsenal were robbed in 2001 as well. Lelouch, his, well, I was going to say favourite memories, but his memories, 
United drawing to Burton Albion and the goal for Everton that everyone missed, obviously, thanks to ITV's adverts and in the midweek game against Liverpool, I think, where the um, Everton won 3-2. I think it was a replay. Fantastic game, that as well. Another timeless FA Cup game. My first memories of the FA Cup was uh, in the 98-99 season and the only game that I could watch because we didn't, we wouldn't get Sky until the 99-2000 season because that was the second season I sort of got into football. So I think I must have chewed my parents' ears off about getting Sky Sports finally. Uh, but my only memory of watching a, an FA Cup game live was Manchester United-Fulham. And um, yeah, Andy Cole getting the goal there, I think. And obviously the final where Paul Scholes and Teddy Sheringham scored. My first FA Cup game that I went to was, again, that was on ITV, so I may as well just stayed at home. But it was a Huddersfield, another local club to me. Huddersfield losing to Liverpool. I just wanted to see Michael Owen. And less so Stephen Jarrod because it wasn't really known as much then. But Stephen Jarrod did play as well. But yeah, I wanted to see Michael Owen. Um, and Liverpool won 2-0. I don't think Owen got a goal that day. All I can remember from that day is the smell of pizza. Um, I don't know why. I don't even think they sell pizza at the Gal Farm slash McAlpine slash John Smith Stadium, whatever it's called nowadays. Anyway, the big moments, obviously, from the 98-99 season, I've replayed over and over and over again in my most used DVD slash VHS, the treble of Manchester United, obviously the win against Liverpool in the last minute, the replay win against Arsenal in the semi-finals. Maybe there's some more big memories for Man United ahead this weekend in the FA Cup, but we've now got to go to Italy, or rather Uruguay, to talk about an absolute magician after this short break. Happy birthday, happy birthday to Alvaro Ricoba, 45 years young today, and we all remember him, of course, at Inter Milan. He was one of uh, Massimo Moratti's favourites alongside the likes of Christian Vieri, R9 Phenomena, Ronaldo and Roberto Baggio's Inter Milan just seemingly had a um, rotating cast of world-class centre-forwards. Uh, Ricoba would debut in Uruguay at Danubio at the age 17, moved on to the Giants in Uruguay at Nacional, aged 18 and 19, and then 21, he was plucked, as so many South American youngsters are, and plucked to play for the big boys in Europe and Inter Milan. He would return to Danubio and Nacional between 2010 and 2015, which is phenomenal when you think he was playing, playing professional football at the age of 40, 39, 40. So he rubber-stamped his potential immediately in um, Europe. He marked his debut by netting twice in the final 10 minutes against Brescia in August 1997, a day that was Ronaldo's debut as well for Inter Milan. Ronaldo obviously spent a year at Barcelona and then would move to Inter Milan, where he played for five years off and on. A bit like Ricoba, really. And Ricoba did overshadow Ronaldo's big day. The first coming from 30 yards, the second absolute belter of a free kick. And and that was almost it for the rest of the season from Ricoba. He's announced himself and then he's just going to... He only played seven more games in the league. Uh, only scored one more goal against Empoli, which was the following weekend. So he sort of burned bright in the 97-98 season. And he'd only reached double figures in terms of appearances... In terms of goals, sorry, the um, for Inter Milan at least, in just one season. He did net 11 in 19 for Venezia in Serie A, uh, saving them from relegation, scrabbling them out, and they finished 11th in the end, um, where he cobbled together a superb partnership with uh, Pippo Maniero. Maniero scoring 12, Ricoba scoring 11 in Serie A, which uh, confirmed their safety pretty much. That was in the 98-99 season where he went on loan. He returned to Inter Milan 
score his second and final double figures in Serie A in the 99-2000 season. And amongst this rotating cast of world-class centre-forwards, he was somehow the highest-paid player at Inter Milan. You've got Christian Vieri there, you've got Ronaldo, who just won the World well, he was about to win the World Cup, should have won the World Cup in 98, arguably. But Ricoba never hit the ground running. Um, it was a glut of Inter Milan, Inter Milan managers. They seemed to go through them like bread. And it was like uh, Marcello Lippe, Hector Cooper and Roberto Mancini. Nobody could get anything out of him. Um, he was set for a one-year spell on the sidelines. He was banned. He got a fake passport. And that was because the rules at the time in Italy, they only allowed for five non-EU players. And Ricoba gained a passport that claimed he had Spanish heritage, which he didn't. He would have spoken Spanish, of course, being from Uruguay, but um, he then had his passport removed as well as his Italian citizenship, which he gained in 99. And he even held a fake driver's license. I mean, nobody knows even if he can, if he could drive in Uruguay, but he definitely didn't have a legit driver's license in Italy. So controversy sort of followed him a bit in um, January 2001 when he was banned. Uh, the ban got removed, re- reduced, sorry, to uh, four months in January 2001. Coincidentally, around the same time though, where he signed a bumper new contract until June 2006, um, he'd never hit double figures in a league season again. Uh, the lack of form, it meant that the club couldn't get rid of him. He was this sort of uh, player who everyone knew he could have been absolutely fantastic. He could have been, like Ronaldo, one of the best South American imports that Serie A had ever seen. And he did get chances it's not he was in Milan for 11 years let's not forget Ronaldo he had a battle with Hector Cooper and that left him going to Real Madrid in the summer of 2002 which left the onus on Ricoba although Ronaldo had missed quite a lot of time through injury so Ricoba could have easily grabbed that mantle then you've got Crespo coming in as well but nine goals in 27 games sort of suggests that the mediocre form continued he missed the penalty in the Champions League playoffs against Helsingborg, which means they wouldn't even qualify for the group stages. Inter Milan dumped out and, you know, that set of uh, set a lot of things into motion like Calcio Poli in Italy winning the World Cup, etc., etc. All sorts of uh, sliding doors moments there. I wonder who could uh, make something out of that. Anyway, Ricoba's form continues to nosedive and he continues to be this mythological figure that never hit his potential he seemed to be well liked by his peers and teammates and even though they would be frustrated with him, he didn't train at all. He couldn't be bothered to uh, stay behind late, do extra bits. And Juan Sebastian Vron says of him, the only reason that he wasn't the best player is because he didn't want to be. So make that of what you will. I think that pretty much, that's the microcosm of Alvaro Ricoba there. He could have been one of the best players of his era in the late 90s, early 2000s, but he just didn't want to. He was happy with what he had. And maybe there's something in that Northeast football shirts has a memory of Alvo Ricoba being 10 out of 10 on LMA manager 2003. What a game that was. Yeah, a fantastic game series as well. Under Overlooked in the uh, football manager, championship manager series, which we'll, uh, we've got to talk about soon, haven't we really? Ricoba, yeah. I mean, he was another one for me who I'd just routinely go back to the well on around... 2003-4 on FIFA's Championship Managers. He was Championship Manager 02. He was just class. Um, I always signed him just in off the left. I mean, nowadays it'd be fantastic sort of inside forward on the left, uh, on the right, sorry, and cutting in and just with that bullet of a left foot that he had. 
he'd be class. I mean, if he could obviously be bothered to apply himself, um, he would go on to play with the Nerezuri until 2008. So when uh, Torino had a loan spell with him, um, he, the former Venezia manager there bringing him to Turin, um, he wouldn't last too long. He went on to play, for, play in Greece for two years uh, before returning home to uh, Danubio and Nacional to see out the remainder of his career. He would only score 10 times in 68 appearances for his country, so it wasn't just a club thing where he couldn't be bothered. I mean, those sort of numbers aren't the best. He appeared in the 2002 World Cup, Uruguay getting eliminated early on in a group containing Senegal, Denmark and France. He played in two Copper Americas, left without a trophy for his national team. He scored just over 150 goals in over 500 games and he will go down as this iconic figure this cult figure, so to speak, really, in the early 2000s, the Gazetta period coming to an end on Channel 4, um, just had a wand of a left foot and a traction engine of a left foot. He was underutilised, under his potential, really, but happy birthday anyway, Alvaro. I hope you're not listening to this because it's pretty damning, <laughs> damning um, biography, little biography I've done of you there, but I liked you anyway. <laughs> you were of your time and a fantastic footballer even though the potential wasn't reached. After this short break, we'll be staying in continental Europe, but going to Spain for the 2003-04 season in La Liga. Welcome back. Now I've not got a screen to show you the league table and the results. I'll uh, go through them. So the weekend of March the 13th and 14th, which was the weekend just gone 17 years ago today, we had... Real Madrid and Real Zaragoza drawing 1-1. We had Atletico Madrid going down 2-1 to Real Sociedad. Betis and Osasuna shared the spoils. Racing Santander got a win in Barcelona against Espanyol. Real Valladolid beat Sevilla 2-0. Mallorca got a surprising 4-2 win over Deportivo. Villarreal and Malaga got 2-1 wins over Albacete and, and Athletic Club. Respectively, Barcelona got a 2-0 win against rock-bottom club Real Murcia whilst Valencia got a win at Celta Vigo. So the table is thus. Real Madrid led Valencia by four points with 10 games to go, whilst Barcelona and Deportivo looked fairly comfortable in third and fourth place, respectively. Not going to threaten the title race, definitely not going to drop out of the top four. Top four. Athletic Club and Atletico Madrid, and Osasuna really, on 41 and 40 points. They were some way off. They had to, four wins to make up on the likes of Deportivo and Barcelona. Meanwhile, in mid-table hell, you've got the likes of Villarreal, Sevilla, Betis. Sp- Betis and Sevilla split by just goal difference. So, Malaga, Rassan Santander and the other clubs sort of eerily looking over their shoulder were Valladolid on 35 points, Sociedad on 35, Zaragoza on 33, Albacete on 32 Likewise, Mallorca on 32, but there was a bit of a gap to the relegation strugglers. Celta Vigo on 27 points, Espanyol on 26. Could Espanyol seriously be dropping out of La Liga for the, one of the first times in their history on in 19th place? And then you've got Real Murcia, pretty much already relegated, only two wins from 28 games, 17 points, a good 15 points to make up there. But the story of the 2003-04 season isn't any of those teams. It's not even the Clasico teams. It is, of course, Valencia. Rafael Benitez took over Hector Cooper after um, a stint with the Tenerife job in 2001, and he built this defensive team of Santi Canizares in goal, one of the 
best goalkeepers of this time there and only didn't make so many appearances for his national team because he had one Icacasillas in front of him, so he's a good time for Spanish goalkeepers. You've got Pellegrino and Ayala, good centre-back partnership there, and you've got Ruben Baraya and David Albelda in that double pivot in front of the defence, which is so solid, even despite losing guys Comendieta to Lazio for a whopping £42 million, I think it was. They signed Mister on a free transfer, which is absolutely wonderful business. Uh, I think he was 22 at the time. You've got Carlos Marchena coming in as well. Benitez wouldn't really add to the squad in his first three seasons. His first three seasons, he's only three seasons, and um, he wouldn't add to the list of Champions League finals that Hector Cooper, his predecessor, got to in two thousand and two thousand and one. Uh, and Rafa's fifth place the previous season in two thousand two three, it ensured that he wouldn't get another crack off the Champions League with Valencia, because the two thousand three four season will be his last in Spain with uh, the Mestalla club, Mister was rattling the goals in. He'd got three in the UEFA Cup run. To Was at this point, as we're speaking, 17 years ago today, they were in the quarterfinals. And after this weekend, the Spaniard got a hat-trick against Mallorca and Real Madrid's draw this weekend was followed up with a 4-2 defeat in Bilbao to Athletic Club. So the heat was on Real Madrid, who were going into this season, the Spanish champions. The deficit was just one point. Valencia just kept winning. They racked up wins against Santander, Murcia, Zaragoza, whilst... Um, Draws at home to Real Sociedad and away in Bilbao. Saw Valencia somehow sneak into the lead because Real Madrid just weren't at it at all. They absolutely got trounced 3-0 by Osasuna at home. And the uh, Galacticos misery was compounded with a Clasico defeat in Madrid. Xavi getting the winner on 86 minutes on the in the 25th of April later on this season. So a further defeat the following week was the nail in Real Madrid's title coffin. Deportivo winning 2-0. Deportivo, of course, massive club in this era. Got to the semi-finals of the Champions League this season. So with three games left, Valencia held a four-point lead, whilst Barcelona and Deportivo confirmed Champions League football relatively safely. Real Madrid lost once more at home to mid-table opposition. The collapse, it was complete. They lost 3-2 to Mallorca, who were fighting for their lives at the bottom end of the table. The following day, Valencia just needed a win against Sevilla. Vicente got the early goal. Ruben Braille finished things off in stoppage time. And Valencia were champions again for the sixth time. They go on to lose the final two matches. They weren't really bothered about them, obviously, because they couldn't improve on their position. And the biggest game of the season was boiled down to one night in Gothenburg, the UEFA Cup final against Marseille. But before that, they needed a another stoic set of displays against Villarreal in the semi-finals of the UEFA Cup, where a missed penalty was the only... Goal of that tie, 1-0 on aggregate, Villarreal would lose. Similarly in European semi-finals, 1-0 on aggregate a couple of years later in the Champions League to Arsenal, of course. I had to slip that one in. So Valencia in Europe, they were mildly successful. Um, they'd won successive Fairs Cup back when the UEFA Cup was called the Fairs Cup. Beat Barcelona in 62, beat Dynamo Zagreb in 1963. And uh, their third European triumph and final up until this point was the 1980 Cup Winners' Cup win against Arsenal on penalties. Valencia had waited for their fourth European triumph for a long, long time. It looked as though the 20-year anniversary of that barren spell was over when uh, Valencia met Real Madrid in Paris, but Steve McManaman, the scissor kick, <laughs> uh, that dream ended quite quickly. And uh, the following season, they'd come back to the Champions League final, playing Bayern again, losing, but this time on penalties. Obviously, German team penalties, they were always going to lose. So, 
Vicente and Mister got the goals in Sweden against Marseille to end that 24-year run. Valencia, obviously, now approaching a similar sort of barren spell in European football now, 17 years without a European trophy and seemingly set for a long spell in the mud. Not really got any money. The owner doesn't seem to be willing to part with any money to improve the club. Obviously, the club is definitely going to be on the market soon. They're selling all the best players. So it looks as though that run will be better, that 24-year run, unfortunately. Rafa Benitez would leave Liverpool in the summer, taking the likes of uh, Mohamed Sissoko, Fabio Aurelio and Pellegrino with him. And the Valencia team was filled with household names. Roberto Ayala was one of the best centre-backs at the time. Marcheno was a superb defender as well. You've got Albelda and Baraya in that midfield. Mr. Pablo Aymar was one of the best playmakers. Probably Riquelme probably kept him out of the uh, Argentine team quite a bit, but Aymar still had his place. Absolute gold on Championship Manager 2002. A bit like Ricoba. Aymar and Ricoba in behind a centre forward giving that any day and you'd probably Vincenzo Montella on that game which would be fantastic and Vicente up front of course fantastic play memories of the Valencia team from my Twitter followers Lelouch says Miguel Mister quite simply Jake Collinson says Pablo Aymar and Santi Canizares were two players I used to sign on LMA manager thanks to that Valencia side another shout out for LMA manager the memories are coming in thick and fast now fantastic management sim game the first management sim game that I played personally in 2000 uh, Joseph Kevin says one man Rafa Benitez and Harry Holland says it was his first experience of Rafa Benitez. So Rafa obviously becoming well known and well accustomed to our British eyes and British minds, obviously with that five year spell at Liverpool. Valencia though, they could have won the treble had it not been for Real Madrid in the Copa del Rey quarterfinals. The Galacticos, they wouldn't win the Copa, losing in extra time to Real Zaragoza in the final. And the Galactico through that door that summer was David Beckham. They wouldn't win a trophy, despite a squad that was littered with talent such as Zinedine Zidane, Roberto Carlos, Ica Casillas, Luis Figo, Raul, Ronaldo. But their two departures that season, that summer, were crucial. Fernando Hierro, a stalwart at the back, even though he was 35, he still could have done a job for me, really. And Claude Makalele. Now, Makalele sort of give... Real Madrid balance in the midfield and his sale to Chelsea was crucial. They went into the season champions in 2003. They wouldn't win anything until 2007. They finished fourth this season in behind Barcelona and Deportivo and then went on to finish second in 2005 and 2006. Meaning David Beckham, before he left in 2007, only won the La Liga trophy, which is just phenomenal. Um, Real Madrid would bow out to Real Valladolid and Real Zaragoza in successive Copa. Del Rey seasons and to Juventus and Arsenal in successive last 16 Champions League ties as that sort of curse continued right through the first Galacticos era and through to the second Galacticos era as the hunt for La Decima ended in 2014 and it was a team that was supposed to dominate. It didn't have the balance though, they won nothing. Beckham leaving in 2007 with just one trophy under his belt whilst Ronaldo, Figo, Zidane by that time were all gone or retired. So, much promised. And that win for Real Madrid in the quarterfinal of the Champions League in 2003, it spurred Roman Abramovich on to buy a football team, which how different would the footballing landscape be if he didn't get that ticket to that game at Old Trafford? It doesn't even bear thinking about, does it? So the three teams in the relegation zone 17 years ago today were Mercia Celta and Espanyol, as previously mentioned. 
Mercy would finish 16 points adrift, while Celta's 39 points wasn't even good enough for 18th, they would go down. Real Sociedad, Real, Real Valladolid, sorry, and Racing Santander would get sucked into a relegation battle. And with the final weekend of the season to play, you've got Celta on 39 points, Valladolid on 38 in the drop zone, with Espanyol on 40 fighting for their lives, and Santander on 42 hovering above that dreaded dotted line. Santander needed a point at Deportivo, which was a tricky task at the best of times in this era. They wouldn't get it, but Celta Vigo's late defeat to Mallorca, two goals coming in the 86th and 89th minute, relegated Celta Vigo, kept Santander safe, and Espanyol, they just needed a point now because of Valladolid. Valladolid would win 3-0, impressive against UEFA Cup semi-finalist Villarreal, but it was useless, even with 41 points, because... Espanyol were made to wait for their doomed win, their win against doomed Real Mercia with the likes of Raul Tamuda and Lopo Garcia scoring in a 2-0 win, which kept Espanyol alive. Espanyol would get relegated, sadly, in 2020, ending their long wait to be relegated to the Segunda. The 41 points for Valladolid would have been safe in all but five of the following 17 seasons since, which is quite... Impressive, really, considering it's usually like a mid-table points tally in the Premier League or anywhere else, really. Currently, Real, Real Mercia and Racing Santander, they both sit in Tier 3. Mercia would spend just one season in Tier 1 after after this in 2007-2008, and they're now in the third tier of Spanish football for the eighth season, as we're speaking right now. Celta Vigo bounced back, but they'd return to the Segunda between 2007-2012, and of their eight La Liga finishes since the 2012-13 season, they finished 17th three times. So they're kind of like the new Espanyol, clinging on to survival by the skin of the teeth. They have had a Europa League semi-final in and amongst that, though they are currently 10th in La Liga. Valladolid yo-yoed. They were in La Liga between 2007-10, 2012 and 2014. And they've been in La Liga ever present since 2018. Yo-yoing between the top flight and the Segunda there. They've currently got R9 as their current president. Their 13th last season was their highest finish since 2000, which was 8th. And they're currently three points safe and in 16th, so look to be in another relegation scrap there. After this short break, we'll be ending things with a 2000s trivial teaser where we had two correct answers. Welcome back, so... We had two correct answers, I said. So our answer last week was Cleberson, who is, of course, a central midfielder. He's been managed by Dunga and John Tiganar. Cleberson, with his national team, has been fortunate enough to play with Roberto Carlos, Ronaldinho, Cafu and Ronaldo. I didn't. I think I specified which Ronaldo, but he's played with both Ronaldo, so I could have just done two Ronaldos, but that would have been far too easy. Cleberson, of course, a World Cup winner, and of course his fifth teammate was Quinton Fortune, who we played with briefly at Manchester United. Well done to Jake Collinson and Mark Byrne for getting that correct answer. Well done. So, our teaser answer this week is a centre-forward. He's been managed by Kike Sanchez-Flores and Ronald Kerman. Two managers quite familiar with the Premier League. Our centre-forward has played alongside the likes of Juan Mata, Nemanja Vidic, David Silva, Pablo Hernandez and Matt Derbyshire. So, our centre-forward, he's been managed by Kike Sanchez-Flores, Ronald Koeman, Juan Mata, Nemanja Vidic, David Silva, Pablo Hernandez, and Matt Derbyshire. If you think you know the answer, 
let me know on our Twitter account at what if underscore YouTube. We'll be back with a, another teaser answer next week where you will reveal where I will reveal the centre forward. Elsewhere on next week's episode, which will be episode 34, only on audio, which is ACAS, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be talking about World Cup qualification shocks because it will be the international break again, finally. And we'll be talking about Tottenham Hotspur before Harry Redknapp. So pre-2007. And the table never lies. We'll be going to Serie A for the 2003-04 season. Elsewhere, over there on our YouTube channel, we'll be talking the 1997 Champions League final, the European Cup, Sven-Goran Eriksson, Jean-Pierre Papin, David Rocastle, Jimmy Greaves, the World Cup, Francesco Totti, and we've got a lovely little review of a lovely little football game, FIFA 2006. I'm on Twitter at whatif underscore YouTube. I'm on YouTube for what ifs and more, such as Throwback Thursdays, Fantasy Five Aside, Ranked, and obviously, we're staying right here on the podcast feed every Wednesday, right up until the European Championships, where we'll be adding a few nice little series here and there. Acast, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you get people to talk into your ear for a few hours uh, when you're not feeling lonely. Anyway, enough about my life. Give us a five-star review on those platforms, our followers, our subscribe, uh, boost the algorithms, give us a spike in viewership subscribers, that would be absolutely beautiful as my son wants 500 subscribers by April the 3rd, which is his fourth birthday. So we'll see you next week. See you there. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.